Today we look at a passage of Scripture that illustrates how great our God is. We turn to John chapter 6, reading verses 1 through 15, as Jesus fed the multitude with five loaves and two fish. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy food so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. What are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having, having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments, from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come, and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we have just sung of how great you are. There's nothing that is too difficult for you. And Father, I pray that we might see in this passage of Scripture just how powerful you are, Lord Jesus. How you are able to do beyond even what we ask or think. And how this illustrates so clearly that you are able to save us. You are the bread of life. And as you fed bread to that multitude, Lord, it was your desire that that they would experience the living bread, the true bread that comes down from heaven, the bread that gives life to the world. Father, would you take now these words that have been given to us by the inspiration of your Spirit, apply them to our lives today. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. How many of you are so old that you need a magnifying glass to pull a sliver out of your finger? I don't expect you to raise your hand, but I'm at that stage in in life. I can see from a distance, so I'm aware if you start nodding off, so don't think my eyesight is so bad. But when you're trying to look at those nanoparticles, you know, You kind of need a magnifying glass so that you're able to see. You know what's interesting about a magnifying glass? 
A magnifying glass doesn't make anything bigger. It helps us to see whatever we're looking at in a, in a clearer way. And that sheds some light upon our call to worship this morning in, in Psalm 34. Did you notice the word magnify? In Psalm 34, verse 3, David says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Think about that. We don't magnify the Lord in order to make him bigger, do we? We don't. There is no way to make an infinite God bigger. Our problem is that we don't see God clearly. As sinful human beings, we don't see as we ought to the majesty, the vastness, the power, the glory, the mercy, and the grace of God. And that is one of the reasons why we're here today. Why do we come on Sunday? We come so that we might see God in His glory and majesty, that we might magnify Him in a clearer way. We might walk out of this place today and say, you know what? I think I see God just a little bit clearer today. And that would be my prayer as we look at this text today. How big is your God? That, that's the title of my message today. I want to begin by asking you that question. How big is your God? Is he big enough to save you from your sin? Is he big enough to provide for all of your needs? Does his greatness, his glory, his majesty make a difference in your life? I trust that as we look at Jesus in this passage of Scripture, that his majesty, his greatness will indeed make a difference in your life. Notice, first of all, there is no problem that is too big for Jesus to solve. Do you ever have problems that you really don't want to face? Situations that come your way and you say, you know what? I don't really want to deal with this. I think the disciples in our text were at this point because they already had enough problems on their plate at this time. For example, Matthew tells us in Matthew 14 that they had just heard that John the Baptist had been beheaded. And so they were grieving the loss of a dear brother in the Lord. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 6, verse 31, that the disciples were so busy at this time that they didn't even have time to eat. Ever been there? <laughs> You're just running from one thing to the next, and, and they were so busy, no time to eat, I am certain that they wanted some time alone. Isn't that the way it is? With your schedules just packed, just give me some time alone. And then our text tells us it was late in the day. They were in a desolate place, and the hungry crowd that had followed them was ginormous. I learned that word from my granddaughter. She was sitting in my lap looking at me and just kind of paused and said, Grandpa, the hair in your nose is ginormous. 
I covered up my ears because if the hairs in my nose was ginormous, what was she going to say about the hair in my ears? That's the only place it grows for me. Out of your nose and out of your ears. Well, this crowd was ginormous. 5,000 men, and many believe that was just the number of men. You add to that the women and children. We're talking about thousands and thousands of people. The first response of the disciples to this crowd is recorded in Mark's account, Mark chapter 6, verse 35. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and it is already quite late. Send them away. (laughs) Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. As if to say, Lord, there is no way that we are going to be able to feed them. And so just send them away. That was the only viable solution in the eyes of the disciples. The need was so far beyond their ability to meet that there was nothing that they could do. They looked at themselves as helpless. It isn't difficult to understand that response because I think we probably would have responded in much the same way. I mean, you look at the size of a crowd. Have you ever been in the midst of a crowd of, you know, thousands of people and you think of, hey, come on over for supper. I got something to feed you. I mean, it's just like you can understand what, what they were thinking. But Jesus made them face this need, didn't he? They couldn't just send the people away. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that Jesus said, you give them something to eat. I can just picture the disciples, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, you give them something to eat. Don't send them away. Feed them. Now, why would Jesus tell his disciples to feed the crowd when there was nothing in themselves that they could do? You know why? Jesus had a purpose in this. Look at verse 5. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes, And seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? And then the next verse says, This he was saying to test him. What was the test? For he himself knew what he was intending to do. So Jesus was going to show his disciples their great helplessness, So he could reveal to them his great power. He was going to show them that there was no problem that was too big for him to solve. And those disciples needed to know that, didn't they? They were going to be going out and proclaiming the gospel. They were going to be facing many situations where only Jesus could solve that. But it was a lesson that didn't come very easy, did it? We know that's the case because right after this miraculous meal, Jesus sent them to the other side of the lake. And while they were in the lake, they faced this storm. You'd think that what they had just seen and Jesus feeding this multitude would have made a difference in their life. But listen to what Mark says, Mark chapter 6, verse 51. Then he got into the boat with them. And the wind stopped, 
And they were utterly astonished. Utterly astonished. After seeing that Jesus fed this multitude with five loaves and two fish, then the next situation, they're in trouble in the, in the, in the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus comes and, and stills the storm, and it's just like, this is astonishing. And then Mark makes this point in verse 52 of Mark 6, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. Now you look at them and you see, we're tempted to say, what is wrong with you? Huh? Would you be tempted to say that? Look what you just saw, right? Thousands of people fed with five loaves and two fish. And then the next situation you're in where a miracle is needed and you just, you just don't get it. It's easy to be hard on them, isn't it? And yet, what would you have done? Or what do you do when you're facing the next challenge that comes your way and you've already seen God do something significant in your life and then it's like, oh no, what on earth am I going to do? We have no reason to doubt Jesus, do we? But there are times when that's exactly what we do and it ought to cause us to ask the question, how big is our God? How big is He? Is he able to handle whatever situation we face? If God is small in our minds, we have big problems, don't we? But if God is big in our minds, as he is, our problems don't look as big. And so, how big is your God? We need to magnify the Lord because there's no problem that is too big for Jesus to solve. Second lesson we learned, there is no person too insignificant for Jesus to use. Who was Jesus going to use to meet that need that day of the hungry cow? Was it Peter? Well, you'd think it was Peter, right? I mean, he was the leader of the apostles. Peter isn't even mentioned here in the text. How about Philip? Jesus obviously wanted to use Philip to meet this need. He even invited Philip's input, right? We just read that before. He comes to Philip and says, where are we going to get bread to feed them? Where are we going to buy bread so that these may eat? And He was testing them, testing him. He himself knew what he was going to do. And notice Philip's answer in verse 7. Philip answered him. He said, 200 Denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. Get the picture of Philip. He's the accountant, right? He's saying, okay, here's, the, here's what's in the bank. Here's our money box. We got 200 denarii. There's the crowd. This ain't going to work. Huh? He's looking at spreadsheets and balance sheets and budgets. And he says, this is, is just not going to work. Ever find yourself thinking like Philip? You look at the resources you have and you look at the need and you say, this ain't going to work. <laughs> There's no way that this is going to happen. Bruce Milne said, sadly, our response to the Lord's testing 
is too often the same as Philip's. We measure the need, quantify our inadequate resources, and resign in hopelessness. It is all beyond us. The need cannot be met. So Philip says, this ain't going to work. How about Andrew? He tells us about the loaves and the fish. Verse 9, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. And if he would have stopped there, it would have been great. He goes on to say, but what are these for so many people? It's almost as if he was embarrassed to say it. Here's this crowd. and Well, we've got you know, five loaves and two fish. I almost even hate to mention that because what is that going to do for this huge multitude? After the many ways that the disciples had seen his power, you'd think that they would say, well, Jesus, you can do it, right? You, you, you can do it. But he didn't. John MacArthur says they were like a person who stands in front of Niagara Falls and asks where we can find a drink. (laughs) They are standing in the presence of Almighty God, Jesus Christ, and they're wondering, where in the world are we going to find food for this multitude? Like standing by Niagara Falls and wondering, is there any water anywhere? Any water? Quite interesting, isn't it? Who did the Lord use that day? Look at verse 9. You you see a little boy. We don't even know his name. Jesus took someone whom the world would say is insignificant and performed a great miracle. And if you look at Scripture, that's God's pattern, isn't it? He takes the young. He takes the weak. He takes... The insignificant. We think of Gideon when he was called to, to fight the Midianites. He said, who am I? I'm, I'm the, our family's the least among the tribes. Or we think of David, the little shepherd boy. Remember? Oh, it's got to be one of his older brothers. And the Lord says, no, it's, it's, it's the guy washing the, watching the sheep. Jeremiah, when God called him, he said, I'm just a youth. I can't speak. <laughs> Then I think of 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he might nullify the things that are, so that what? No man may boast before God. Would this be the reason why Jesus used that little boy to feed the thousands? Then he gets the glory. No one can boast of what they have done. There is no person too insignificant for Jesus to use. Thirdly, there is no provision too small for Jesus to bless. Although the disciples, they were convinced that the resources they had were much too small. But Jesus didn't view it that way at all. In Mark's account, Mark 6, verse 38, Jesus said to his disciples, how many loaves do you have? 
Go look. And when they told him it was five loaves and two fish, in Matthew's account, Matthew 14, 18, he says, bring them here to me. Okay, what do you got? Well, five loaves and two Just bring, bring them to me. Because Jesus didn't say, oh no. Is that all we have? Just five loaves and two fish? We are in big trouble. How are we ever going to feed this multitude? No, he said, bring them to me. Just give it to me. It's a lesson that isn't an easy one to learn. We have a tendency to say, just think what we could do for the Lord's work if we had fill in the blank. Huh? Ever said that? Ever thought that? Just think what we could do if we were a millionaire. If, if I was a millionaire, I would give you know, half of my money. You know, and what the Lord is not concerned about, what you would do if you had more, what is He concerned about? What you do with what you have. As you give it to Him, as you surrender it to Him. And so that's the question. Are we willing to surrender what we have so He can use it? I hadn't noticed this before, but one author brings this point up. How Jesus was thankful for the little that was given to him. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number, about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. Five loaves and two fish in the midst of a crowd, and Jesus says, thank you, Lord. Thanks for this provision, because God would use it in a, In a powerful way, an amazing way, the entire crowd was satisfied, we're told. Verse 11, John says that they ate as much as they wanted. Verse 11, he says that that they were filled. Quite a contrast to what Philip had said earlier in verse 7. He said that this isn't enough for, for, for each one to receive just a little. But when Jesus was done with that, they were full. As much as they needed, they were full. And if there were teenagers there, he had to multiply that a whole many times over, right? Teenagers, you got a hollow leg or something. I don't know where they, where they put it all, but they were satisfied. That ginormous crowd was, was satisfied. And when they were done eating, they had more left over than they did when they... How do you figure that out? That'd be a great potluck dinner, wouldn't it? Church potluck. You have more left over than when you started, and you've got a few meals you can take home, huh? Yeah. Amazing. So, what was the purpose of this miracle? Why did Jesus reveal to the crowd his great power? Was it just to meet their physical needs? Or was there a greater purpose? Well, certainly part of the purpose was to meet the needs of hungry people because Jesus cared about them. Matthew's account, he says, Matthew 15, 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days 
and have nothing to eat, and I do not want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. So Jesus was concerned about their physical needs, right? And he's concerned about our needs as well, right? Psalm 145, verse 15 says, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. And so Jesus cared about those people because they needed to eat. And he cares about you in that way too because you and I need to eat. And he provides that. And I hope you recognize that every time you eat, that you bow and give thanks as Jesus did, that this has been provided for you by God. He satisfies every living thing. But there's another purpose a greater purpose for this miracle. And John tells us what that purpose is in verse 14 where he describes this miracle as one of the signs that Jesus performed. Look at verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you know that there are at least seven signs that John pointed to, that Jesus did. And you find then, at the end of his gospel, towards the end, the purpose of these signs, such as the one we see here. Look at John 20, 30 and 31. John says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, So John is saying, I'm just giving you a sample. Then verse 31, he says, but these have been written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's why these signs were given. Not just to satisfy their physical needs, which it did. But it was more than that, to prove that Jesus is the Son of God who can save us from our sins. In other words, the miracles point to the greatest miracle of all. What's that? That's salvation. That's coming to know life in in Jesus. So this was a sign that pointed to that wonderful truth that Jesus is who He claims He is. And He can save us from our sins. Now the crowd was correct when they said in verse 14 that this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. They were referring to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, where Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your own countrymen you shall listen. But the problem with the multitude that Jesus fed that day is that they weren't looking for a Messiah who, who would meet their, the needs of their soul. They, they were looking for one who would meet all their physical needs, who would make life easier for them. And so, verse 15, they, they wanted to, to, to take Jesus and, and force Him to be their King. And Jesus said, I want no part of that. So he withdrew again to the mountainside by himself alone. 
But you've got to read on in John 6 to, to see the end of the story here. People followed him and his disciples to the other side of the lake. And Jesus knew why they were following him. In John 6, verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. He knew why they were following him, didn't they? You just want me to satisfy all your physical needs. You aren't following me for the most important reason. Then verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. So the ones who ate the loaves, they missed the whole point of the miracle. They wanted Jesus to keep filling their empty stomachs. And Jesus said, you have a heart that needs to be filled. You need a living relationship with me. And that feeding of the 5,000 was to illustrate then that Jesus is the bread of life. Come down from heaven. Look at verse 48 of John 6. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. See what he's telling you? If that's the only reason you follow me to get your stomach full and you don't know me as your Savior, that physical food will feed you for a while, but you're going to die. Then he says in verse 50, This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You ate that bread that I fed you yesterday. But you need more than that. You need me. You need me as your living bread, as your Savior, the one who can cleanse you and forgive you and give you life. Jesus couldn't have been clear about who he is. And he couldn't have been clear about our response to him that it is really a matter of life and death. How we respond to Jesus as the bread of life is a matter of life and death. If we reject him... Where will we spend eternity? In hell. Judgment forever. But if we receive Him as the bread of life, then we experience life abundant, life eternal. And that's what Jesus wanted them to know. And that feeding of the 5,000 was kind of like the introduction to the sermon. Then He got to the main point. You need the bread of life. You need me. If all you want from Jesus is a full stomach, if all you want from Him is to feed your physical body and, and, and no more, what's going to happen to you when you come to the end of life and you aren't ready to meet the Lord? We need someone who can save you. 
You need someone who can forgive your sin. And Jesus is the only one who is big enough to do that. Who is great enough to do that. Because He is God in human flesh. Who gave His life for you on the cross. Have you tasted the bread of life? Do you know the one who is able to save you? If you have, then I would say take to heart what what David calls us to worship. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. Praise Him that He has saved you, that He's given you life and forgiveness. And if you don't know Him, Jesus is the bread of life. He is able to save, able to cleanse, able to give you a right relationship with the Holy God. He invites you to come to Him today. Will you come? Will you put your trust in Him? Rest in what He has done for you on the cross as fully sufficient for your salvation? Oh, come and receive that bread of life Everlasting life, abundant life, in Jesus and Him alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for who You are. Those signs that You performed pointed to the great miracle, the greatest miracle of all, the miracle of everlasting life. Father, would You do that work in us today? We might know for sure that our sins are forgiven, that our names are written, the Lamb's Book of Life. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to your table this morning and we partake of your goodness to us as you provided your body, your blood for our salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake.